Let's all stand for the reading of today's scriptures. We love to come to the Word of God together every time we gather. We love to come to the life of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to join me. If you have your Bible, uh, or if you have a device with a Bible on it, please turn to Matthew 16. We're going to be camping out there for the first part of today's talk. Matthew 16, verses 13 through to 20. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. If you've got a fancy device and you can change to have the same words as mine, then New Living Translation. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Zip your lips. Okay, this is the word of God for us today. All together, grab a seat. I just want to imagine for a moment that the text we've just read is like a movie being filmed in front of us and I'm the director and you're my camera person and I tap you on the shoulder and I just say, can we just tighten that shot up a little bit? Can we just go back into that again a little deeper? So let me just read again. A little bit tighter, this is verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, so he asks this group of people around him, his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Like, what's the word on the street? What are you hearing? Well, they replied, and here's the report. Well, some are saying John the Baptist, some are saying Elijah, some are saying Jeremiah, some are saying other prophets. And in some of the other texts we have, some are saying you're a carpenter, some are saying, oh, you're just that guy from Galilee. Like there's all this word on the street around who Jesus is. Verse 15, and Jesus looks at them. He says, but who do you say I am? And Simon, Simon Peter answers, and I don't know if it was with fear and trembling. I don't know if it was like with a cocky, I've got it figured out. I just don't know. But he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And I say to you, back to you, reflecting back to you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. All the powers of hell will not conquer it. All right, tap you on the shoulder one more time. All right, camera operator, we're going to tighten in a little further. Let's just zoom in a little bit further on the shot and go one more click in. Verses 15 and 16, we're zoomed right in now. He asks them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It turns out, Central Vineyard, it's really important who we think someone is and who we declare them 
to be. It's really important who we think someone is and who we declare them to be. Let's just take a moment to pray, to let this text sit in our hearts, and we're going to talk about that a bit this morning. Spirit of God, we invite you to come and take this text and this story and plant it in our hearts like seed that it may be a good fruit into the future. Lord, may something beautiful grow here as a result of this. By your Spirit, come and bring life and fruitfulness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the gospel writers often keep prodding us with this question that we're encountering in today's text. Often this question is lurking within the gospels as you read the biographies of Jesus. If you don't know what the gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they are the biographies of Jesus, the capturing of the life of Jesus. And in them, we are often left as the readers with this sort of sense. Who do, who do people say this guy is? Who is this guy? What am I meant to do with this guy? And here in today's text, we have the first time that someone says, you are the Messiah. Peter declares it, Jesus, you are the Messiah, or in Greek, you are the Christ. Now, those aren't words that we often go around saying, often is it, except for maybe some of us might say Christ is a bit of a light profanity when we spill coffee, when we jam our finger, or when we've left our kids too alone in a room for too long and it's been quiet and we walk in after them and it's an absolute shambles and we go, Christ, you know, like, you shouldn't do that. Um, and what, 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 what is actually going on with those terms? What is actually going on with those words? What is Peter even saying? Well, those words mean the anointed one. They mean king. Anointed means that, that, that you have been set apart and you have been appointed and you have been empowered by God. King means you're in charge. Uh, Tom Wright, he puts it like this in his commentary on this. When Peter was saying, what Peter was saying was, you are the true king. You're the one Israel has been waiting for. You're God's adopted son, the one of whom the Psalms and the prophets had spoken. Peter is simply saying this, you're the central character, the climactic point of this whole story of God. It's right here in front of us. Everything hinges on you, Jesus. You are truly the fulfillment of the past. You are everything of the present and the future will be completely secure in you. You're everything. Peter declares it. He says, this is who I see you to be, Jesus. And in turn, Jesus declares back to Peter who he sees him to be. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are Petros. You are the rock. Now, if you'd read enough of the rest of scripture, you'll know Peter's a pretty crappy rock. He's pretty useless. In fact, in just a little amount of time, he's about to stuff up in a pretty significant way and his name gets changed in a very significant way. But I'll leave you to read that for yourself. Peter's not that great. So why would Jesus say that what has happened here in this moment is so significant that the entire church is about to be built on it? Is he talking about Peter? No, he's not talking about Peter himself. The point is not Peter Peter's confession is the point here. What Peter is saying is the point here. What Peter has seen and declared is the point here. The church that is to come 
is about to be born from the foundation of this confession from Peter. I love what Tom Wright says again in his commentary. He says this. This click is not working so well, Dave. You might just need to stay on it with me. Uh, Jesus isn't going to build an actual city or an actual temple. He is going to build a community consisting of all those who give allegiance to him as God's anointed king. And this movement, this community starts then and there at Caesarea Philippi with Peter's declaration. It's important to point out something here. Often we think that Pentecost is the start of the church. Often we think that the, 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 that the birth of the church was Pentecost. And, and that's, that's true to a point, but actually the conception of the church, the true beginning of the church before Pentecost, before that public outpouring of God's spirit, before his empowerment upon his people that set it into being a light in the world, before all of that was this confession this confession is the conception of the church. That's a good line. That took hours. We often think that it's the Pentecost event of power and dramatic things like signs and wonders and glory that are like the big starting point of the church. But actually, that's incorrect. There's a layer deeper. It's this subtle but very deep moment. It's this confession, this statement of faith. It's this declaring of belief. Jesus, you are everything. That's where it all starts. This is the rock that sits in time that begins to be the rock upon which the church is built. It is confessing people with a confessing story. So what is it to confess? Why is this word confession so important here? Well, confess is a bit of a funny word. And in the negative sense, which is how you might be thinking about it as I'm talking about it by default, confess means to admit you're wrong. Confess means I confess my sins. Confess means I confess my weakness. It means I, I confess and offload my guilt and my shame. I own it. I name it. I point it out. I share it. I disclose it. I've done a lot of confessing to my wife about disclosing where I've stuffed up. She doesn't do so much confessing to me, but that's okay. This is the practice of confession. But there's actually another side to it too. So that's the negative side. There's a positive side. The positive side is in the more affirmative, to confess is to declare. So to confess is to declare, it's to make a statement of what is important. So yes, there's this negative sense of um, it's conveying a, a, you know, a disclosure of, of sin, but then there's this positive sense of stating what's important. Uh, there are churches in the world who literally have on their sign, if you were to go to their church today, that they are a confessing church. That's the title of their church, capital C, confessing church. Uh, for example, in the Second World War, in the German church, this is really not working for me today, um, in the German church, I'm just gonna go like this to you, Dave. That's the cue, all right? I'm turning this off. Stay with me. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his friends started the German Confessing Church during World War II. The German National Church had become tied to the Nazi Party, and so as a result, the German National Church had become, uh, had become uh, what's the word that I can use here? Um, um, they'd fallen short of the standard that they were meant to be keeping. Uh, they'd become nationalistic. And so this group of pastors got together and they wrote a confession, the Bremen Confession. And in that, they declared the kind of church they wanted to be. And they started the German Confessing Church, capital C, a church brought together by its declaration together. 
And it might be an interesting thought for you to think about, but here at Central Vineyard, we are a confessing church, but no, I haven't got capital C. We're not a capital C confessing church. It's not our title, but we are a confessing church together. How? Oh, every week we begin our gathering with a confession. Uh, we do it at the start. A lot of you aren't here for it yet when we do it, but we do do it. Some of you are like, I don't know this thing you speak of. Well, we do this confession together and we do it at the start of church and we say our intention for being here together and what we are here to do. Come, let us worship God. Um, when we come to the communion table, we have confessions, these things we say together. These are these little C confessions that we use as a way to be, to be tying our hearts together. Um, if you've been baptized, you have participated in a confession. You got in the waters and you confess that Jesus is Lord, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have rule of your life, and you said yes, and you declared that when you got baptized. You are a confessing person. We are a confessing church. None of this is new. We could actually sum up all of church history. All of church history could have a subline. The story of a people who are living this confession out together. That's what church history is. Church history is 2,000 years of people living out this confession. It began in Jerusalem. It, actually, it began in Caesarea Philippi. It went to Jerusalem. It spread out across Asia Minor and the Mediterranean and eventually to the very ends of the world. You can read about the first several decades of the story just in the last half of your Bible there in the New Testament. So much of the story plays out there. You can read about this story by looking into the, the literature of the church fathers and the church mothers. You can read history on this. The story goes from Peter to the rest of the apostles, the apostles to the early church fathers and mothers. It goes to things like the Nicene Council. Uh, it goes at the, at the, at the first uh, millennium. It splits between East and West. Uh, 500 years later, it splits from Roman Catholic to the Reformed Church. The Protestant reformers reform the church. The last 500 years ever since then, it's just all sorts of stuff as various movements and denominations sit within the reformed tradition. We're going to look at that in a few moments. There's missionaries who have taken the gospel to the corners of the earth, including here, where Tarongapai has come to Aotearoa in its story. And for us in particular, in the last half a century, the vineyard movement, the vineyard part of the church was born. And we are here today as a culmination of all of that to say, that's the story of confessing people. And we are here as confessing people, continuing that story. We are not an isolated event. We have not been the first people to do this. We have our distinctives. We have our particularities. Any, any group of people getting together sociologically is going to have that. That's just a fact. We have our unique part of the story for sure. But we are tethered to this great tradition this great story. We are people like Peter who have a confession to make. And that's why we get together. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. He's the center. He's the center holding all of this together. And with the church that's done it for 2,000 years, we are joining in. But how do we think about that story? How do we think about this in a good way? How do we turn around and think about 2,000 years of this story in a helpful way? Often it's been shown to me like this. Has anyone seen this before? The Christian family tree? Yikes. So there's, uh, let me just explain it to you really quickly. There's a trunk, which is where it was all unified for a brief moment. And then it splits off into some branches 
and then a whole lot more branches. It's a great picture to show, hey, here's where we all come from. It's like a family tree. But there is a problem that creeps in with this way of thinking about the church. There's a big problem that creeps in. What people tend to do is they tend to find themselves on the branch and then they kind of get into this us and them. Here I am on this branch and I'm not those guys and I'm not that one and those, that's the weird uncle who always comes to Christmas. That's what that one is down there. And we don't invite this one to the party anymore. They're gone. Like that, that's what we tend to do. We use it as a way to validate our position, our us and them nature. Now let me just say, it's, it's, it's good to be able to express where our differences are. That's a good thing. That's fine. But it's also not helpful at driving further segmentation into a picture that is very segmented already and dividing up a divisive picture that's already pretty divisive already. We don't actually need much help to grow further apart these days, do we? And so... What it also does is it doesn't convey, there's another problem actually, it doesn't convey how you can be multiple things at once. So I know you can't see it because it's pretty zoomed in, but the vineyard is kind of at the top, uh, as it should be actually, I think. As, uh, yeah. it's, no, it's, at, it's up the top off the side of the charismatic movement that came off the Pentecostal stream and off the, Met but, but actually if you trace our roots, which we're going to do in a couple of weeks time, we actually came off the Quaker side of the branch, which is weird to me because it's like we're actually in the wrong part of the tree here apparently and there's a bunch of things about the Quaker tradition and the Anabaptist tradition that I deeply resonate with that apparently looking at this tree I'm not going to be because that's not how the branches are working. Or there's these deeply sacramental parts to the tree, beautiful sacramental theology that apparently we aren't because we're on that branch and the sacramental theologians have all got it over there. But we are deeply sacramental here. So, so this is not a helpful picture. Thinking about it in this way is not helpful. So what might be a way to think about it a little better? I want to propose to you that we think about the church as a rock that we are found upon. Let's just think about that a little more. Uh, and just to do that, I want to drop you into this beautiful lecture moment that I was in with my friend Johnny, Johnny Rankin. He was talking about our place in the church and he said this, I've, I've, I've tried to quote him the best that I can. He said this, we often think of the unfolding story of the church over the last 2000 years like a linear journey along time from here to there. And where we are is the most enlightened and best version of it so far. And this is such arrogance. The best way to think about it is not in a line, but in depth. It is a story like a sedimentary rock. The layer outside only exists because of all the layers that existed before it. Every layer has been needed. And I am truly only standing here upon it because all those other layers have gone before me. Uh, next slide. When we started pulling together the graphics for this series that that quote came to mind that story came to mind the story of the church like sedimentary rock with the layers each layer has has seen its moment in in the in the front layer of time it's seen the sun it's seen the storms it's had the weather hit it and all those markers I showed you before of the story of the church laid out in a tree, in a way they could actually be put in their layer of the rock, the edge of the, at the outside of the rock. They've faced the elements. But right now, we, we are in our moment 
of being upon the outer layer of the rock. We're here in this place and this moment of time, and it's our turn to be the ones who are confessing that same statement that, that Peter said all those years ago, the rock on which the church was built. And I don't know about you, but maybe this is just a bit of semantics and wordplay here, but I do think there's a big difference between seeing it like that tree or seeing it like this beautiful, thick, sedimentary rock that we stand upon. And I know every metaphor ultimately breaks down. I know that. But I think this one is really beautiful, and I wanted to convey that to you. One of the things I think it does is it helps us to have historical humility. We are only here because we have something to stand on. And that something to stand on is only here because of history. And we are continuing it. As the Māori Whakatauki puts it, kamua kamuri. Have you heard that one before? We walk backwards into the future. We are better when we are aimed backwards into history. Taking on the lessons, taking on the wisdom from the past of those who have lived it. In fact, to only aim forwards is actually foolishness. And, and I think it's the sort of hangover of our enlightenment, arrogance that we carry in the Western world. It's to believe that we only need ourselves for this moment to find ourselves in to, to move forward for progress. We are the ones who have figured this out. We're God's gift to history right now. We have it right. Follow us as we go off to the great adventure. But actually to walk backwards into the future is to walk historically humble, holding the story and bringing it forward, not arrogantly in progress. And I really resonate with, with where Johnny said that in that quote. It's such arrogance. CV, let me just dig here a little bit. For us to take our place well in the story of God, we need to put away our progressive arrogance. The Lord does not need another group of people who are more enlightened, more developed, and better than the last groups. The Lord needs humble and contrite hearts. The Lord is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Lord is looking for those who, who like Peter, have declared and confessed, Jesus is where all the answers are going to be found. Jesus is everything. That much I do know. Now, I'm not saying we shut off our brains and we put away our thinking. I'm not saying that we don't do anything new at all. What I'm saying is that we have to conquer this arrogance. We have to put it away. We have to stop it from coming on the field of play as we play this together. Uh, if you need a little guide of what that looks like, let me just give you a little snapshot. Arrogance is to scoff at history. It's to think we know better now is to think we're the only ones who have got it right or able to really know. Now, and I know that the progressive postmodern world that we are all cooked in all week long and all of the context of our life wants to bring us to that leading edge of progress to find our validation and to find acceptance and to say, you fit here because you agree too. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of the kingdom. Finding our value in progress are not markers of the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus say, blessed are the agitators. They will know you for your wokeness. Go into the world and write aggressive social media posts for all. 
That is not the teachings of Jesus. No, in the kingdom of God, we find our success only, and as far as I can tell, what Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount, being people of the kingdom, which means being people faithfully standing upon the rock that he has brought about. Uh, in Matthew 7, there's this story from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uses, this teaching from Jesus. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. And when the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Just a little trigger warning for some of you who are still dealing with flood damage in your homes. I know that's you know, a little triggering. But that's the lesson, isn't it? Is that we know that when homes are built in the wrong way or where they shouldn't be built, there are consequences when storms come. Jesus takes this idea and he conveys to us a wisdom, a truth. He says, when the storms come, when the waves crash, it is not the houses that are on the sand that will stand firm. It's, they've been washed away. When the pressure of culture comes, when the temptation to bend our ethics and our truth, when, when testing of our conviction comes, when deconstruction winds blow, when suffering rains never seem to end, when the latest fad in church fails, when the, last, when the latest quick hack for having a, a good life seems to collapse, it's actually those on the rock who seem to still remain. And Jesus seems to be saying in this teaching that the faithful will show their faithfulness just by still being there. When all has come through, when all has passed, Whatever that has been, whatever storm that that side of the rock has faced, when those who are standing there, still faithful, faithfulness is on display. And what this says to me is that it doesn't seem that progress is being conveyed in that picture. There's no exciting frontier to take or an agenda to conquer or a big rally to attend. It's just those who are standing solidly and assuredly. The rock is our Christian tirangawaiwai. It's our place to stand. It's our place of belonging. You know, to put away our arrogance is to say throughout 2,000 years, God has been giving the church a rock to stand on. We have not made it up. It's not on our shoulders. He has been faithfully building it. The church is not our idea. It's, it's a gift from God been given to us by him it's been here well before us and it's going to go on after us and we're not making this thing up Jesus has been faithful to build her so, so please don't understand misunderstand me what I'm trying to say today you know I'm not trying to say we need to put away all endeavors to live forward and to pioneer and to create and to make changes and do all those things I think the, I think the church should do those things what I'm trying to say is that there is a good progress and it comes from a good posture. What I'm laboring over here today is that we need to posture ourselves well. The way to posture ourselves is by turning around and walking backwards into the future with historical humility. And this is a thing of our hearts and this is a thing of our character. 
You know, to say that we should put away this greater zeitgeist that's in our world at the moment of progress or die. It's toxic and it's unhealthy. It's arrogance. We need to be different. We need to know our history and we need to cherish it. You know, it's a chance for us who are cynical. Maybe some of us in the room right now are critical and you're asking big deconstruction questions. That's okay. But I would just implore you, if you're critiquing the church, please try to measure it against the greater, longer story. Take those big questions, but, but don't just hold them in the shallow waters of this moment and in this context. Let the depth of 2,000 years of saints become an ocean that you swim in as you ask those things. Wisdom calls out to us in this moment, and wisdom says this, be historically humble. And if you do that, you'll be a gift to the present and the future when you know and treasure what is behind you. Which brings me really nicely to a thought from Te Ao Māori. And that's this, whakapapa. Whakapapa is just another way of saying everything I've just said. And like all of us as individuals, churches have a whakapapa. You know, what is whakapapa? Well, at a baseline, it's the understanding of our genealogy. It's to connect the dots behind you, to look at the people that you have come from and to ask, where did I descend from? Where did I come from? But actually, whakapapa is bigger than just some family tree. It's bigger than just connecting some dots. It is to ask, what are the stories that lie within there? What has happened in history around this story? What has mattered to my ancestors. So in looking at your family and to know your family story, that's papa. but to also take on board the events and the learned wisdom and the identities that are found throughout, that's papa. So papa puts you into a matrix of people and place. And all of that story makes you who you are today. papa means you are not an isolated event, You are the current embodiment of the story that's been playing out from long before you. And as a result, you are, it gives you identity. And more than that, it gives you roles and it gives you responsibilities for this moment that you find yourself in. Whakapapa tells you who you are, tells you what to care for and who to take seriously and what to contribute to. This is a big and beautiful concept here. Papa gives you the greatest cues on how to play your part today in the world. And when you know your Papa, you are tethered to the past in deep ways so that you can live in today's context beautifully and well. And Papa doesn't just go back one or two generations. It goes back many. It goes back generation after generation after generation. Uh, some papa that I've heard recited can even go all the way back to God. That's how well and explored the papa story has been for people. It tethers us to a greater story, which brings me to why we called this series Whakapapa. It's to remind us again, hey, we're not an isolated event. We're not alone up here on this edge of history and time. We are tethered to a greater story, one that's gone before us. It's been full of people and events and moments, all of which together inform us, give us our cues 
on how we are to be today, who we are to be today. Our Papa tells us of our roles, our responsibilities as the community of Christ. We can get our cues from the past of this global and local family of God.